We are currently working through our Journeying with John series. Our Journeying with John series where we are doing a verse-by-verse expository study through the Gospel of John. Through the Gospel of John. And so we are now on chapter 4. We are now on chapter 4 of the Journeying uh, with John series. We were talking about in in chapter 1, how there was a light, and um, in the light was the life of men. Um, and that word, you know, the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. We beheld the glory, even as the only begotten of the Father. Then we met a man named John, and John was here, and he was sent to be the forerunner for Christ. He was sent to be the forerunner for Christ, and he was talking about um, how that related to us um, as people. We see in John chapter 2, where Jesus performs his first uh, miracle, public miracle, where he transforms the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Then in chapter 3, we meet a a man named, who knows his name? Nicodemus. Nicodemus being a chief Pharisee, being a ruler of the Jews. And we meet him and God, or Christ, God through Christ, explaining, um, explaining to him how he can't see heaven, he can't see the kingdom of God unless he be born again. And then we come to chapter 4, where we see that the, the Pharisees and the, uh, the Pharisees and, and John's disciples, they kind of get together and start having a little bit of a quarrel. And when they do that, they come to John, and we talked about how gossip is dangerous. When you can just come to the source already and just get it taken care of, and how if they would have just given him the chance. But what ended up happening was they missed it. They followed John without realizing that John was leading them to the Messiah. Church, let me tell you something right now. The day that I come before you and I expect you to stop following Christ, to follow me, you need to get me out. Alright? You need to get me out. Because it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about God. And it's about going out and seeing souls saved and bringing them to the Savior. That's what it's all about. So the day that I start getting puffed up for whatever ungodly reason, it's time for me to get the boot. Alright? And so John, I believe that John, and John told them. He said, you were there, right? You bore witness when I told you that I was not the Messiah. I told you this, and you did not listen. And from that, for, from that part, point forward, they moved. Uh, uh, they end up, there ends up being some tension. And so what ends up happening is Christ now and his disciples leave, that, leave Judea, and they start going. Um, to another place. So now we see them moving to a place called, who remembers? Where are they at now? Anyone remember? Starts with an S. That's Samaria. Yes, they're at Samaria. And no, I had to give you a hint, so don't celebrate. I had to help you. Alright? So they go to Samaria, right? And in Samaria, what ends up happening is we find out that Samarians are half Jew, half Gentile. And because they're half Jew, half Gentile, what does that mean? The Jews didn't want anything to do with them, right? It was awful. We found out that Samaritans usually are made up of a bunch of different pagan religions and Jewish traditions. And when that happens, the people usually, the societally, they aren't looked at very well. They're not looked at very well, being half Jew, half Gentile. And so the Jews traditionally had a great disdain for, uh, for the Samaritans, but not who? Not Jesus. And Jesus meets a woman at the well. And he tells her to get me some water. And she goes, why would you ask me to get you some water when you're a Jew? And I'm a woman of Samaria. And 
That's all he wrote, right? All she wrote. And so God ends up doing something with Christ, uh, which is something that he doesn't do often. Who remembers what it is that he did? He did something special that he doesn't do often. Anyone remember? That's right. He exposed himself as the Messiah. What does he normally do? He talks about himself in what person normally? The third person normally. But in this passage, it's one of the few times where we see where he, where he changed that. And he came and presented himself to someone who was socially um, looked down upon. Someone, I mean, she was not only a Samaritan woman, but she was a woman. You know, and so there was two strikes against her from that time, that time in the day. Uh, that time in history. And so she had a lot stacked against her, and she knew it. And Christ loved her anyway, where he was able to tell her, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't have asked of water of me. You know, I wouldn't be asking water of you. You would be asking water of me, right? And the water that I give you was living water, and you'll never thirst again. And what does she say? I want this water that you have. And four chapters in a row, we see Christ in some way, shape, or form presenting the gospel. So now that I've caught you up to speed, we're moving on. All right, John chapter 4, John chapter 4, look at verse 16, and he's still, where we pick up in verse 16, Jesus is still meeting with the woman of Samaria, he is still meeting with the woman of Samaria, and their discourse is going to end after the passage that we look at tonight, so let us pray really quickly, and then we will get into um, our Bible study lesson for tonight. Dear Lord, we thank you for, this, for your son and for sending him to die on the cross for our sins. I pray that as we finish seeing how Christ dealt with this woman at the well, that we would be able to take some lessons from this and apply it to our lives, that we may be able to better ourselves, to better our church, to better our community, to ultimately better our world. And God, we will give you all the honor and glory for it all. In Jesus' name we pray and we're thankful. Amen. All right, so verse 16, look it, look it up. It says this, um, it says, Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. So what we see happening is a really weird question, right? Because in verse 15, you know, she says, The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. So she says, Hey, I want this water from you, and I want you to give me the water you're talking about. I don't want the water that comes from this well. I don't want you to pick anything up to draw from it. I want you to give me the water that you have. Verse 16, Christ answers with a really weird question. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. Now, we know that God is what's called omniscient, right? Omniscient meaning all-knowing. So we see a lot of times where Christ will make commands or he will ask questions when he already not, already what, church? He already knows the answer. This is one of those instances where he is going to ask a question or give a command when he already knows why it's going to play out. So keep verse 16 in mind as we think about the fact that he just asked this woman to go um, and get her go and get her husband. But remember, as we look back a little bit of a few examples um, of what the Bible says, how does this happen? What do they, what do, they do? How do they, um, how, how, how do we know that Christ does this? We think about in the Bible in, in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, right? And they ate the fruit, and behold, they opened their eyes and saw that they were naked, and they covered themselves and hid, right? And then in comes God, doing what he does every single day, was walk with Adam in the cool of the night. And a uh, cool of the evening. And he says, Adam, where art thou? Now God is what, church? He's omniscient, which means he knows everything. So did he know where Adam already was? Yes. Adam, where art thou? Adam pops out. Whoop. Here I am, Lord. He said, where were you? Does God already know the answer, church? 
what does Adam say? Adam said, I hid myself. Well, then God says, Adam, why did you hide yourself? Church, does God already know the answer? Yes. He said, I hid myself uh, because I saw that I was naked. And then what does God do? He asks another question. Who told you that you were naked? Church, does God know the answer? See where I'm going? You're like, Pastor, that's, that's repetitive. I'm trying to tell you that God has a pattern. Who told you that you were naked? And God does, God does this, and we see it happening in time and time again, where the people will now have a responsibility or a chance to make their situation right if they were wrong. It's for grace. I wholly believe that if this account that I'm talking about right now would have went better, life would be drastically different for us. Why? Because God has always been a proponent of grace. God has always been a proponent of grace. But what happens? Adam, who told you that you were naked? Well, the woman that thou givest me, and that's all she wrote, right? We see it happening again where Cain slays his brother, his brother Abel. He slays his brother Abel, and so God comes to him and says, Cain... If you do good, then you will be accepted. But if you do wrong, then sin lies at the door. Then we see that Cain met Abel in the field, and he rose up against him, and he slew his brother and buried him. And then in comes God. Cain, where is your brother? Now, church, does God know the answer? Where's your, where's your brother? And what did he say? The question that would get a lot of black children slapped by their black mama. And mind my brother's keeper. That would have got me backhanded so fast, followed by the chancla, followed by the belt, followed by the... I would have got it. And mind my brother's keeper? That's what he says. Did God know the answer? Of course he already knew the answer. But Cain had a chance to make it right, and he did not do so. So we have, so we have some instances like that where we've seen those things happen. So he goes to her, and he says, Go call my husband. Now, you may say, why does she need her husband? He just asked if you want the living water. She says, yes, I want the living water. And then that should have been it. But he's, I want you to put a star by verse 16, circle it, whatever you got to do, because this verse is something that is pivotable, pivotal in the lives of believers all over the place. And that verse is going to be important as we look at how that applies to us later. He says, go and call thy husband. Look at verse 17. For God, uh, wrong, wrong chapter. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, thou hast said, well, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and whom thou hast, whom thou now hast, is not thy husband, in that saidest thou truly. And so he lets her know, he says, where's your husband? She goes, I don't have a husband. Well, he was like, mm-hmm, well, that was the truth. Because we know you ain't got no husband. He said, because you've had five husbands. And the person that you're with right now is not your husband. So you got six men lined up in your corner. And you don't have, you may say, Pastor, why is this happening? Why, what's, what's the purpose of that? Well, if you will relax, I will tell you. Don't rush me. I'm getting there. Verse 18, again, he says, For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that saidest thou truly. And so we had to already know, first off, she was not going to have a great image. She was, Samar she was a Samaritan. She was a woman. And now she has multiple husbands. And the guy that she's with now is not even her husband. So she, you can see how the cards are just stacked against this woman, right? The cards are stacked against this woman right now. And so what's important about this? 
I believe that there may have been a double meaning in this passage. And when I explain it to you, I think you may understand. Now, can someone tell me, we talked about how the Samaritans had a couple of different qualities. Number one, they were half Jew, half Gentile, and that they were made up of several different pagan nations. But what else do we know about the Samaritans? What does that usually mean about their city? What is it filled with? Sin? What else? What's that, Brother Greg? Sin? Wickedness? What else? There's something that you're, you're, you're thinking too hard. Idol worship. Right? They come and they're a society that's made up where if you... The reason why the, the Jews didn't mix with the Samaritans is because usually once you get mixed in with the Samaritans, you're going to have to take in all of the gods that come with that. So if she had five husbands... And a, and, a, and a sixth person who she's not even married to yet, we're talking about a potentially six different gods. You understand, right? So he says, you have five, he says, because you've had five husbands, and the one that you're with right now is not your husband. And so he makes this thing, he lets her know that he confronts her with her life. He says, okay, you, want this, you don't want this living water? You can have the living water. But go get your husband. He is right now about to confront her with her life, and she's about to come face to face with it. And the reason why I thought this wasn't probably a double entendre is because we know that if her heart is given, listen to this, if your heart is given to five different gods, can your heart be given to the one true God? What does the Bible say? Thou shalt have no other gods before me, right? And thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, right? And then Exodus 20 verse 5 says, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, right? And do you remember what happened when they put the, the false god Dagon in the, in the temple with, with the Ark of the Covenant? And they came back in and it was tipped over and they, they put it back up and they came back in and it was tipped over and they put it back up and they came in again and the arms were broken off and the head was broken off and the land was cursed and all that other stuff because God does not share. And so he's confronting her with several problems at once. Number one, you got all them husbands, girl. And the, and the man that you're with is not, your, is not even your husband. Number two, you have all these false gods that have now been introduced into your life. There's no way that there is a ground that is conducive for me. And you may say, well, where do you get the context for that? Well, if you will slow, what did I just say? Slow down. I will explain it to you. So Jesus goes, yeah, you don't have a husband. You're telling the truth. But she is now has a heart that is now given to multiple people and to multiple gods. And that's so important because even though she says, yes, I want this living water, he had to make some things clear to her first. Look at verse 19. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Now, church, we talked in the beginning of this series that there was going to be a whole bunch of times, right? Where Christ was going to say something very just plain stuff. And what was going to happen? They were going to miss it. Yeah, look at y'all. Y'all got the hand motions down. Miss Angelica, you are the hand motion queen. You're just rocking all the hand motions tonight. Right over their head. Every time. So last time we were here last week, we were like, yeah, she's probably the first person that got it. Hooray. Right? And now she goes, so I perceive you're a prophet. She missed it. She missed it. I perceived, that, I perceived that thou art a prophet just when I thought that she had it. That she was going to be the one that's... She, she was reeling it in. She hurt my feelings by missing it again. Mm -mm -mm. 
she didn't realize that he was more than a prophet. He was more than a prophet. Look at verse 20. It says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So, um, my question to her was, was going to be this. Well, then who are your... You have to think, because I told you before, you can't just... You read your Bible, it's not just the surface level stuff. There's always going to be deeper stuff happening on, underneath. Because if you understand the context behind why it's important to know that she's a Samaritan, when she says, our fathers worship on this mountain, now you're thinking, well, who's your fathers? Because you're, you're half Jew, half Gentile. You're half Judy, you know, Jew and half pagan. So who exactly are your fathers? It could be where it's a mixture of both. It could be the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It could be some of the people from her own, uh, from pagan past times. But either way, she goes, our fathers worship on this mountain. And you're telling us that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. All right, verse 21. It says, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. I'm going to read that again. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You know how we've been looking at chapter and John and we see that there have been physical parallels to spiritual matters? Right? We're talking about how Christ told Nicodemus that you already understand how the Holy Spirit works. Why? Because you felt the wind. You've seen where it's gone and where it's come. You've, you've seen its effects, but you can't see it. And he says the Holy Spirit is the same exact way. Right? The wind that we feel, that we see rustle the trees is the, spirit, is the physical counterpart to the actual spiritual aspect. You understand, right? I'm saying a lot of words. But... He comes to her and he lets her know. She says, hey, you come to me. And this is what happens all the time. You're talking to people and you're trying to witness to them and they divert the, tub, the, the subject to stuff that's not even important. Right? So he's like, so she says, I want this living water. He says, go get your husbands and all this other stuff. And she goes, I think you're a prophet. All right? Then she says, um, then she says well, well, you tell us that we, got, that we are supposed to worship in Jerusalem. When we are supposed, we've been worshiping in this mountain for whatever long. So she's kind of diverted the subject a little bit. But what we see happening is this. Is Jesus tells her something that's so important. Number one, we have to understand that in this time, Jerusalem was indeed the central hub for worship. Whenever the time of the Passovers happened, where did they meet? They met in Jerusalem, right? At least all the Jews did. At least all the Jews did. And so she attested that her forefathers worshipped here, and Jesus let her know that Jerusalem was the structured place for worship. And so she's going, but then he says something really important. He says, there's going to come a time when you're not going to worship neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You'll worship the Father, but not in the mountain or not in Jerusalem either. Why? Because, as I said before, there are spiritual counterparts to all the physical aspects. Right? There are, spir there are spiritual counterparts to all the physical um, aspects. She's going to worship God, but in neither of those locations. The battle that we see Jesus, ha Jesus struggling with, with many of the Jews, because the Jews, we know, were very stubborn people. Right? We know that. And so what we find him struggling with 
is the fact that he was trying to get the people to step away from all they adhered to on the fleshly side, on the physical side, and not to, and over to the spiritual, the spiritual aspect of it. That's what he needed them to know. This is another one of those instances. He explains more in verse 22. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. As I expressed to you before, that God doesn't share, and we talked about how God is a jealous God. He expresses to her that she only worships um, in part. She only worships in part. And you may say, why, where do I get that from? We've been spending so much time in John where we saw that, what, about three times now? Where Christ or John the Baptist has said, I gave you, you know, my word, but what? You received not my witness, right? I gave you my word, but you received not my witness. And so that's a key thing to happen there because he lets her know that you don't even know who you worship. You don't even know who you worship. You're over here trying to talk to me about how your forefathers uh, worshipped in the mountain versus in Jerusalem. And you don't even know that, you don't even know who you worship. You worship in part. What we find out happening is that the Samaritans, especially someone, because this is what happens when you're polytheistic, right? Someone who is polytheistic cannot do what? They cannot have one entity be the greatest of all, right? The moment you become polytheistic, everybody is now put on the same plane. At least with the Jews, even though the Jews were in error, at least the Jews had one understanding that God was the one true God. Right? But, but, but the Samaritans did not. They worshipped Dagon and, and Ra and Ashtaroth and Baal and all those different guys. Right? And so they had all those, all those things going on. So he says, listen to me. There's going to come a time, number one, where you're not going to worship in the mountain or in Jerusalem because you don't even know who you worship. You don't even know who you worship, number one. Number two, it's important for you to realize for salvation um, is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews, letting her know that, you know, at least the Jews had this understanding. So he makes it a, a declare to her to worship right. Look at verse 23. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship must worship him in spirit and truth. If you could put a star or underline or circle verses 23 and 24, those are also extremely important. He lets us know that God is a spirit. Therefore, effectual worship can only be done on a spiritual plane. But he said what? You must worship God in spirit and in truth. Right? So check this out, church. Watch this. God is a spirit, so you worship in spirit, but Christ was the manifestation of God's truth. So what does it mean? So for them to not receive his witness does what? It makes God a liar, right? At least in their minds, that's what it does. Why? Because if Christ himself is telling you these things, right, and you're missing it, or you're not receiving it, you're saying, I'm not believing what you say. He says, you want to worship God, you have to worship God in spirit and in truth. You need them both. Because God is a spirit. Therefore, because what ends up happening is we end up trying, they end up trying to worship on a, on a fleshy level, and that's not going to fly. She's going to have to do it the right way. Look at verse 25. The woman saith unto him, I know that the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things, right? So what's important, right? 
He just said worship God in the spirit because God's a spirit and you have to worship in spirit and truth, right? They did not receive his witness. And so Christ is telling her, you have to worship in spirit and truth. So this is what this girl says. Church. She goes, well, the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he's going to clear it all up. He's going to tell us the truth. And I'm sorry, but we're only in chapter 4, but we got about 17 more chapters of this happening like that. 17, 18 more chapters of this, of this happening where it's just going over their head. She says, man, the Messiah is coming. And when the Messiah comes, he's going to be able to clear it all up for us. She doesn't even fully perceive that it's him. You can even see the reservation in the way that she speaks. Like she's, you can, can, any, can anyone else see the struggle she's having as she wants to live in the water, but she doesn't want to receive it fully, and she, she has questions? That sounds like us, doesn't it? She has questions. She, un, she wants to understand. She's, I believe she's being genuine, but she has questions. She's been raised a certain way. She's, her nature is different from what he's trying to... I mean, he's not talking to a Jew. He's talking to someone that is completely abstract to what he's trying to tell her. So she is now wrestling with what to believe. But one thing she does know is that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll clear it up for us. But what happens? Look in the next verse. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. One of the very few times in scripture where we find Christ revealing himself flat out to someone. He didn't do it. But this time he reveals himself, but to who? To someone who was socially despised, someone who was not socially despised but a woman, someone who was fully given to God and was not fully given to God and, and shared her heart with other men and other gods. She was not spiritually elite. She was not a legalist. She was not, she was not part of the skeptics or Nicodemus. It was a Samaritan woman. And it's just like Christ to look past all of the social norms to love her anyway. Look at him revealing himself. We talked about the Bible says that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And that Jesus gave so much attention to someone who, was, who seemed to be not even, not even really given much credit. We're almost done, church. Look at verse 27. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman, yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? Church, the Bible is the best what on itself? One more time. The Bible is the best commentary on itself. When you, I want you to pay attention, right? Because this is why I tell you. Number one, bring your Bible to church. Number two, take notes. Number two, cross, fact check me, right? Because this is, what you see happening is this. If you know the track record of the disciples, they are very good at saying, Lord, why do that? Why hang with that person? Look at her pouring out all of her ointment. She could have given that to the poor. Why would you? They, they're prone to ask a lot of questions. This time they did not. You, you saw it with your own eyes. It said they didn't ask him, why would you talk to her or what are you doing? They, no man said anything. No man said anything. Solidifying my point that Christ revealed him, who Christ reveals himself to, even the disciples are just blown away into not even saying a word. Like, what's he doing? The disciples are usually pretty good to ask Christ questions, but not this time. Verses 28 through 30, and then we're done. 
The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is this not the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. We see her dropping her stuff and just hurrying into the city to tell everyone what happened. By the way, this is free, y'all. Nobody is a better witness than someone who has had an interaction with Jesus. You know why it's important for you to go into the highways and byways and so that the people who came from those highways and byways can meet with Christ and then go back to their highways and byways and teach the people under their highways and in their hedges about Christ. Do you realize that she now became, she now became a more credible source rather than for Christ to just go in there? Because what happened the last city he was at? They ran him out. It was so tense he had to leave. But with her, she now goes in there and says, Hey, I have met with Christ. And they all come running. There are people in your lives that you're going to be able to reach that I will never, ever, ever have a chance to even talk to. So what's your goal? Our goal to go out in there and get them so that they can come to Christ. Because that's our mission. Alright, so I have three takeaways for you. Three takeaways and then we are done for the night. Number one, you ready for this? Who says, who's ready? Raise your hand. Alright, I'm convinced. Here we go. Number one, coming face to face with Christ will cause you to confront your demons and face your past. Coming face to face with Christ will cause you to confront your demons and face your past. What you need to understand in this passage is that not, all, not only did Jesus talk to her, but he was very tactful in the way that he did it. Notice the order in which he talked to her. Number one, I need you to understand that I have this living water. Right? He presented the gospel to her. After that, he caused her to face what was going on in her life. But you know what? But you remember the workshop that we had a couple weeks ago? It was important because we're talking about this. You notice that he did what, what Pastor Carl said. He empowered her at first, right? Because she's a Samaritan woman who is super low class. And what happened? He, gave, he put the power in her hand. You feed me. I know your social standing, but I want you to feed me. He empowers her. He lets that, he lets that ground. He, he, he lets the environment be more conducive to growth. And then he now presents the gospel. He plants the seed to her. And then after that, it caused her. He caused her to be able to now have a place where they were at least had enough fellowship to where he can do something. As when he established his credibility with her, he was able to see a change. He did not walk up in here and say, girl, you got five husbands and a, and a man that you're not even married to. You little adulterer. That's not what he did. He came to her and he said, I want you to know that I love you. And that I have water that you will never thirst again. But then he caused her to come face to face with her past. To deal with the demons in her corner. And he had her come face to face with those things. And so, we find out that she literally came face to face with the living word. Right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, even the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Right? So she comes face to face with the word. How does that apply to me? That's the same way that we come face to face with the Word. What does the Bible tell us? That the Word of God is quick 
and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the deciding of soul and spirit and bone and marrow. You know what's going to happen, church? Is that when you come to Christ, you're going to have to get to a place where you come face to face with the word. What's the Bible say? Behold, be a hearer of the word and not a doer only, because if you're not, you're like the man who beholds his natural face in the glass and walks away, forgetting what manner of a man he was. When we come to meet Christ in the word, that should cause us to administer a change. That's why you don't like reading your Bible. Because when you read your Bible, in comes the convicting agent, Brother Greg. When you read your Bible, it's going to show you the stuff that you don't like. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And you know that. And I know that. And we know that we're going to come before an almighty God when we open that word. And we know that when we come to him before him in prayer and we enter the holy of holies, that we are going to come face to face with whatever is in our past. Whatever is clogging up our hearts. And that's the reason why we don't want to do it. He said, listen to me, you want living water that's great and I want to give it to you. But you got some demons. Let's take care of those things. Let's take care of those demons. We have to understand that it's going to cause us to have that face-to-face with Christ. The dark crevices of your heart and bring those things into light. So my question to you is, are you going to allow that examination to happen or you're going to continue to ride the fence? You're going to have one foot in church and one foot out. May I remind you that the Bible says that no man can serve two masters. Either he will love the one or hate the other, or love the one and hate the other, but he cannot serve both. And I'm not naive to the fact that in a room there are people who are sitting here who so desperately want to grow and and mature as a Christian, but at the same time you have your foot stuck in the world, and you're like Demas. Do you remember what happened with Demas, church? I'm not trying to be offensive, but I'm trying to be truthful. Demas hath forsaken me because he what? He loved this present world. And some people in this room, you're stuck there between the world and the, and, 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 the, and the word. And you're having a hard time making a decision of where you want to be. But you have to understand that every time you open that word, every time you come before him in prayer, he's going to face you with yourself. And you will have one or two decisions. You'll either take it, face it, and move forward with it, or you'll be like that one man, right? What does it require for you to go to heaven? For you to be saved, right? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But what did Christ tell that rich young ruler? He says, well, because remember, he asked him, what must I do to be saved? Now, what's, what do we know the answer to be? You ask it, you'll have it, right? Read about the thief on the cross. Lord, remember me this day when you enter into your rest. Boom, he goes, right? This day will you be with me in paradise. So we know that you just got to ask for it. Is that what Christ told him, church? No. He says, if you want to be saved, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and follow me. And what did that rich young man do? He bowed his head and he walked away sorrowful, for he had many possessions. That's foreknowledge. Because we have to realize that we're going to have to take up the... What does Luke 9.23 say? I don't, mean to just, I don't mean to just be throwing scripture at y'all, church. I'm trying to get you to understand. Right? If any man will follow me, let him take up his cross. How long, church? Daily. If any man will follow me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. 
you're not going to be able to carry your cross with all that trash in your heart. All the gunk. If you come face to face with Christ, number one, it's going to cause you to confront your demons and face your past. Number two, where is your worship? Number two, where is your worship? Is your worship at church? Is your worship in your car? My, my father-in-law likes to read his Bible in, in the car before work. Is your worship in the car? Is it at church? Is it, is it at home in your prayer closet? Is it, is it at Bible study with all of your friends? Where is your worship? Because if, it, if, it, if you answered yes to any one of those questions, that was the wrong answer. Pastor, what does that mean? Where the physical place where you worship is only a subsidiary to where you're supposed to worship, which is in the spirit. Do you realize that you can come to church, that you can be in Bible study tonight and not be in a state of spiritual worship? If you're here because you feel like you're supposed to and not because you want to get closer to God or, or fellowship with him, then you're not in the spirit tonight. We have to make sure that we understand that. Remember, we're talking about this on, in Ecclesiology on Sunday nights. We're talking about how, the, how the, the church is the people, not the building. We could have church outside on the corner of Hiawassee and Silverstar if we wanted to, and it would still be church. But we have to make sure that your worship is in spirit. What did he tell them? You, he told the woman, you can't, you got to worship in spirit because God is in spirit. Worship in spirit and truth. Because that's what God is. That's where, and that's what we have to do. Make sure that your motives, whatever it may be, you need to make sure that you are here. And listen, we're human. I understand. Sometimes you don't want to help. How many of y'all have ever had it to where you, don't want, you didn't want to go to church? You didn't want to get up and go? Raise y'all hands because I know I've done it. And I'm the pastor of the whole church. There are times where I don't want to go. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to pray. I have those moments. I have them. But you know why I do? And I'm not even going to say because it's right. It's because I love the Lord. And that should be the only reason. Now, I'm human like you are, and some of those times I miss. I miss though. But we have to make sure we understand that our worship is not in the carnal state. It is only a byproduct of us worshiping in here. In spirit. Because if you're worshiping in any other condition... Other than that, you're walking after the flesh and not after the spirit. Something to think about. And lastly, we have a responsibility to reveal Christ to everyone. We have a responsibility to reveal Christ to everyone. We knew that Christ in most times did not reveal himself to the people. And, hey, I'm Jesus. He usually said the Son of Man comes or you know, the Son of God or whatever, but for this woman here in Samaria, she, he revealed to her himself. But what you have to understand is this. Whether he revealed it, because remember, when he dealt with Nicodemus, he did not tell Nicodemus he was the Christ. He told, he told the woman at, at the well that he was, though. Either way, he presented the gospel. And this is going to be a reoccurring theme. I would not be shocked I would not be shocked if this ends up in the takeaways for the rest of the, chap rest of the book. Is this. You have a responsibility to reveal Christ to everyone. To everyone. The rich, the poor, the healthy, the sick, the tall, the short, the hefty, the slim, the homosexual, the heterosexual, the murderer, everything. Normal, weird, I'm in the weird category, y'all. There are no stipulations on the gospel. 
None. And Jesus got down with someone who would be considered the lowest in society. Just about. Probably like, you have like lepers and then like her. That's because that's how it was socially. And he got down with someone who was deemed low and base and vile and unwanted and unloved. And said, I want you to know that the living water that I'm talking about comes from me because I'm the Christ. And your soul matters to me. So don't you dare walk out of this church and go out there and be a respecter of persons with who you present the gospel to. Because we're good at that. We're good at saying, well, that person looks nice. Let me go talk to them. We don't want to look at the person who seems dirty and they smell like urine and they, they have a cup in their hand because they're begging for change. We don't want to talk to those people because of whatever other... No. They need... Someone told me this just yesterday. Someone... People need the gospel whether they are rich and they drive a six-figure car and live in a, a $600 million house or the person who has nothing and they're begging for food. Both people need the gospel. And we have a responsibility to be like Christ and do what he did, which is give the gospel to all people. Let's pray.